If you have your Bibles, please turn to Second Peter, chapter three, and I'm actually going to read the whole chapter, <clears throat> but our sermon will focus on the last five or so verses. And as you turn there, let us ask the Lord to bless us once more. Heavenly Father, we ask again for your illumination by your Spirit. Indeed, Father, we cannot know you or grow in you or persevere if you for one moment take away your Spirit from us, your countenance from us, if you do not drive us to your word to love you and serve you. So, Lord, we ask for that now, that you would open our minds and hearts to hear your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Peter 3, beginning at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. For the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. That's for the reading of God's holy word, and may he add his blessing to it. Well, the title of our sermon is Preparing for Christ's 
return. And that's an appropriate title given this is all about the day of the Lord. And you see that in verses 10 through 13. Our sermon is going to focus on verses 14 through 18. But as they always say, <laughs> when your sermon text begins with therefore, what do you got to do? Find out what the therefore is there for. <laughs> and of course it's there because of what came before in the text. And as we've mentioned in other sermons together, it's really irrelevant when the Lord will return. The day that you die is basically as good as the day when the Christ will come back because all that you have to do once you're dead is await the coming judgment. So yes, the day of the Lord may come in our lifetime. Yes, there can be a reference here uh, to the day of the Lord in that first century when the judgment came upon Jerusalem. Although you do see this really referring to the whole earth being melted down and the works and the people, all the above. Uh, it's really pointing to that final judgment which brings in this new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. So obviously it doesn't really matter whether we live in the moment in that day when Christ returns. We will all be standing before the Lord in that day. And we'll give an account to him for what we have done in our bodies, the deeds that we have done, whether good or bad, as Scripture tells us. And so how do we prepare for Christ's return given that? Well, we see it in our text. In verse 14, we need to be diligent to be found by him in peace, which means to be without spot and blemish. Above, in verse uh, 11, since everything's going to be melted down and burnt up, it says, What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? You prepare for the Lord's return by living in righteousness. Now the backdrop here of all of Second Peter, and I have some notes. Uh, I think I'm going to go off the notes here and just kind of speak directly. Uh, Chapter 1 basically goes into the apostolic credentials that Peter has. He first mentions that we have a like precious faith with them, that is the apostles, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. That is who they proclaimed. That is who we have received. Our faith is on equal footing with them. And then you have these credentials that Peter gives, and he says, we have the prophetic word confirmed. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, of his ministry, of Christ's ministry. You can believe what we are saying. Remember Peter, just three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, were on the mountain with Christ when he was transfigured. And he says the, the, the Father's voice was there commending his Son to them. We have that prophetic word confirmed, and so heed it. Listen to it, Peter is saying, because we are speaking the truth. Verses 20 and 21 at the end of Second Peter 1, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, or Holy Spirit in the New King James here. And so we need that word. We must heed that word because... 2 Peter 2 says that even as there were false prophets, now today there are false teachers among you. This is 2 Peter 2 verse 1. Secretly bringing in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who brought them, and bringing on themselves swift destruction. Many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be 
blasphemed. And they will, with, um, by covetousness, they will exploit you of deceptive words. They will deceive you and twist the truth of God's word and allure you and tempt you with that. Even true Christians will be tempted and led astray because of this. Their doom will come. Yes, the Lord delivers righteous Noah, even righteous Lot, from destruction, even though he was allured to some degree, and his wife was completely led away and lost, as we know. But they walk according to the lust of the flesh, and they teach according to that. And there will be elders, shepherds, who rise up teaching these damnable doctrines that lead to damnable practices. And so it goes on and talks about the judgment that will come upon them uh, throughout chapter 2. But notice chapter 2, verse 18. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. So we talk about the perseverance of the saints here. They do draw away those who in a real sense partake of Christ. Even the elect. Not to lose their salvation, ultimately, if they're elect, obviously. But they lead them in error. They lead them astray. They take fruitfulness from them. They promise, as it says, verse 19, liberty, but themselves are slaves of corruption. Now, notice the dire warning here that indicates that some are, are in the church, in the covenant, professing faith, baptized, taking the Lord's Supper, all these things, and yet fall away, apparently, fully and finally. Verse 20 for if after they escape the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn from it, to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. As it says there, the proverb is true. A dog returns to his own vomit. A sow, a pig, returns to the mud after having been washed, after having been baptized and cleansed, you turn back and apostatize. These false teachers will lead astray the elect for a season to reap all kinds of judgments upon themselves and perhaps with their family and even their churches and others, and even some who thought they were true Christians, who professed faith, who had a true knowledge, who in some sense have escaped the pollutions of this world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, are ultimately cast away and cast aside forever. And the latter end is worse for them than it would have been if they had never heard the truth and come into the church, into the covenant, into God's people. Well, we need to have all this in view when we think about the exhortation that is being given in Second Peter here to persevere and to press on. This is life or death. This is not a game. You can't sit back and rest on, I'm elect. Or, I have the Spirit in me. If you don't lay hold of the means of grace, at best case scenario, you're going to live a miserable Christian life. You're going to grieve the Spirit, as we saw in the confessions. And you're going to squeak into the kingdom with your fruitfulness rotten, by and large. And you'll be, you know, whatever you want to say. It, 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 it will be... A misery, your works will be burnt up. You'll displease the Lord. Yes, you'll be saved. Yes, you'll praise Him for your grace, but you will live a 
a unfruitful life. Yes, every true Christian will have some good fruit. But we see in Scripture the bad fruit of those who don't lay hold, who do not persevere. We see how nigh into hell they come because of that. And we also see that some who we thought were true believers, true Christians, the latter end is worse for them. If somebody is living this way, no faithful minister would give that person assurance of salvation while they're living in sin, while they're not laying hold of the means of grace. They may be saved, but they cannot be comforted with that. And they'd be warned. You know church discipline will come if one lives in unrepentant sin. That's for the good of their soul. Well, these are serious things. These are not, as I remember one professor in Bible college saying, these are not toothless tigers. These are not empty threats. These are not fake warnings. These are not warnings for the reprobate and wink-wink for the elect here. No. Peter's addressing the beloved in these things. And so we better heed these things. In fact, if we are the elect, we will heed these things. This is how God preserves his people. By putting to them the word of God and his true elect people heeding it and receiving it and obeying it. And so we come to our text in verse 14 and following. We have several points here that I want to enumerate. Firstly, we see the call to godliness, knowing the Lord is long-suffering for us. Secondly, that all scripture teaches this long-suffering, but it is twisted by wicked men. And then finally, the warning to avoid the error of the wicked by growing spiritually. So let's begin at verse 14. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. Again, this is the beloved. This is the church being addressed. This isn't color-coding those in the church, whether they're regenerate or not, ultimately elect or not. This is the church being addressed here. To be diligent, to be found by him in peace, without spot or blemish. The word diligent means to strive. Uh, it's similar to the word hasten in verse 12. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day is also used in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, of being diligent to make your calling and election sure. It's in its noun form in verse 5 of chapter 1 when it says to strive after fruitfulness. And so we see here the diligent duty that we have to be found by the Lord in peace. It doesn't happen automatically. It's something that we must go for and strive after. So be found by Christ both now and when he returns as one of his people that is in peace, spiritually at peace, redeemed in Christ and living for him, full of the, salvation, uh, the joy of salvation, not following the scoffers and their lusts, not listening to the enticements of false teachers. And I trust you understand, there's, there's those who teach damnable destructive heresies, but there's, there's softer forms of false teaching too that can lead you astray, that may not in its essence damn you, but follow it and keep going and you will end up into a damnable heresy and be damned yourself therefore oh we must avoid these things and stand firm in the word of God we're to be found without spot and blemish of course we've not achieved sinless perfection 
And we will not this side of heaven, but we are striving for that. We are being diligent to pursue that and trusting the Lord will continue to sanctify us as we desire that and go after that. In Christ, we are faultless in that we are united to him. His blood takes away our sin. And yet we know that within sin in our lives remains. Is it sin that has been crucified? Is it sin that has been paid for by the blood of Jesus? Yes. But it is sin that still easily ensnares and entangles us that we must press against by all righteous means. Whenever Christ returns, we will be judged according, not merely to our profession of faith, but according to our works, Scripture says. It's a reflection of our faith. It's an outworking of our faith, but the judgment is according to what we have done. Now, why has the Lord not returned yet? Verse 15 tells us the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. We have the passage in verse 8 above, one day of the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. We're called to consider this. Same word as in verse 9, when it's translated as count, as some count slackness, as some consider slackness, or some count these things. The Lord is not tarrying and forgetting. That's what the false teachers and others believe. Where is the promise of his coming? Let us live in sin. He's not coming back. He's breaking his promises to us. He's not really serious about judging us. He said he would come and he hasn't. No. Don't listen to that. Don't live like that. And we do. If we're honest, we do sometimes. We don't, on doctrine, on paper, deny the judgment that is to come. But because we don't see the Lord's swift judgment for our sin, we get lax. And we... We sin. We repent because we're Christians, but we do sin. Remember, have in view in your mind that coming day of judgment. And you will find it much harder to sin. You'll find it much more difficult because you know the Lord sees all things. And you will stand before him. The Lord's long-suffering with us is bearing up with us and working out our salvation for us. is meant to lead the elect who are not yet in faith to repentance, as Romans 2.4 says. And as we see here also, it is uh, for our good to bring us on into greater holiness that all the elect would come in throughout all the history of the church, that all would be brought in through the blood of Christ. The long-suffering of the Lord is our salvation. And continuing in verse 15, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. Paul says the same thing. They're united as one, obviously, because they're preaching the same gospel. They got it from Jesus. All scripture then teaches this long suffering. This is our second point. But it's twisted by wicked men. Now, a couple things. Paul, he tells us that in 1 Corinthians 2, everything that we know the Lord is spiritually discerned. In other words, the natural man and his sin and his fallen state cannot understand it. To spiritually discern means it's discerned by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. To live for the Lord. You can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. To heed and obey and follow the Lord is only possible by the Holy Spirit. And so that is the means, the chief means by which we live and pursue the Lord is by the Spirit. By the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. And you will live, Scripture tells us. We do live by the Spirit. And we do not live after the flesh. To walk in the Spirit. 
But we go we go on to verse 16, and Peter explains to us that in Paul's epistles, there are some things that are hard to understand. Now, they speak the same message. So it's also true, obviously, that in Peter and other places in Scripture, there are things hard to understand. Peter's not picking on Paul or something like that here. But he's just stating what's reality. There are things in the God's Word that are hard to understand. And it leads to, as it says, untaught, and that word literally would be unlearned, and unstable people twisting that to their own destruction. These are the false teachers that do this, and others who are led away by them. Notice, they don't just take the hard things and twist it, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. All of God's Word, they reformulate into a system of sin and error and heresy. Right? If you're unlearned, you're going to be unstable. If you're not mighty in the Scriptures, like Apollos, you're not going to be rooted strongly. You're going to be blown away by every wind of doctrine, as it says elsewhere in Scripture, in Ephesians 4 and so on. You must be rooted in the Word of God, knowing it, even the hard parts, so that they aren't twisted, so that you don't twist it to your destruction, or twist it and go part way with these heretics and are robbed of joy in the Lord and fruitfulness in Him, even if in the end you are saved? No. You must learn and study to show yourself approved. Yes, that's applied to Timothy as a minister, but it's true for every Christian to study and be built up in the faith. Now, the word destruction that is used here in verse 16 is also used four times in the first three verses of chapter 2 of the false teachers. Same word. It's who we are referring to. The covetousness that they have by which they exploit you with deceptive words. They're greedy for gain, for pride, for fame, for fortune, so they deceive you and they're positioned as teachers in the church of God. They blaspheme the truth and lead many to destruction. And Paul, or, uh, Peter is saying to all of us, beware, be warned, watch out, take heed. It's crystal clear that we must be on guard for these things in our lives, especially for our children as well. We'll talk more about that in a moment. All biblical doctrine can and is wickedly twisted in one way or another by false teachers and those who follow them. And so to untwist that once your mind is warped and your lifestyle is warped is very difficult. It can be done by God's grace. It can be done and will be done to one degree or another for his people. But it is difficult. And so begin now. Do it all the more today. Do not put it off. And so verse 17. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand... Since you're being forewarned, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. Let's break down what each one of these words mean. Because a lot of people, I think a lot of us look at that and like, what do you mean our own steadfastness? Um, You know, I thought we believed in grace. (laughs) I thought the Lord sustained us. Yes, he does. But again, by taking heed... So, foreknowing here, the things, we must foreknow the things concerning Christ's coming as Lord and Judge and Savior, 
that scoffers will come, unstable people will come and twist the words and lead astray and lead to destruction. Knowing this ahead of time, beware. The word beware means to guard yourself, to keep yourself from falling away from steadfastness, from the faith. It is the same word in 2 Peter uh, 2.5, the same word there that says saved. And do not, uh, God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah. So there is a real sense in which it is saying here, save yourselves. Is that not what Peter exactly said in Acts chapter 2? Be saved from this wicked, or save yourselves from this wicked and perverse generation. Now obviously, obviously, the saving of yourself here isn't working or earning righteousness. It's casting yourself upon the Lord. It's standing firm in the word of God. It's persevering in the faith. But you have to do that, and you have to be active and motivated to do that. These words should be stimulating you and driving you toward that. We must guard ourselves from all that defiles, all that gives us spots and blemishes of sin. We do this through the Holy Spirit in us, as has been said. First John 5.21 at the end tells us to keep ourselves from idols. Same word. Uh, to guard yourself or to keep yourself or to save yourself. What Translated differently depending on the context. The same idea there. Keep yourselves from idols. Jude 1.24 tells us that God is able to keep or guard us from falling and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory of exceeding joy. So keep is both, is, is the same word is used in both places. So notice that reality. On the one hand, we're told to keep ourselves. On the other hand, we're told the Lord will keep us. Well, there's whatever we want to call it, the doctrine of concurrency, the doctrine of compatibilism here. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do according to his pleasure. Both are true. Both are true. The Lord keeps you from error by telling you to keep yourself from error and then stimulating you in your heart by the Spirit, by his Spirit, so that you lay hold of his means of grace and are steadfast, and are kept from error. Think about the flip side of this. What's Pharaoh? I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And what happens? Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Right? We understand this from Scripture, that God is at work in us. But that means we are really working in him, because he is working in us. Now the word fall. Beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness. Fall as used in 1 Peter 1.24. And we confess, or we recite this um, when we're going through the consecutive scripture reading. The grass withers, the flower falls, or the flower fades. Same word, same idea. But God's word stands forever. We don't want to fall away. We don't fall away from the word of God. We don't want to be that fading Christian, that fading leaf. We need to hold fast to God's word, which stands forever. They let these scoffers and false teachers and their lies and so on cause us to turn aside, even for a season. Steadfastness, that is a firmness in faith, in Christ and his promise returned and all his promises. Remain in this. Persevere in this. And I think we know in our hearts that every day it is a battle because every time we sin, to one degree or another, even if it's a small degree, we've, we've wavered a bit from our steadfastness. We've relapsed, as it were. 
No, we haven't denied the faith or come into a, a crisis of our souls of whether you're saved or not. But every time we sin, we're, we're losing sight of this. And if we continue to go down that road, we can really grieve the Spirit and do great damage to us and to others. We must remain firm in the faith. Add everything that is listed in the first chapter. If you go back to chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. In fact, I'm going to read verses 5 through 11. But also, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. There's an adding on in the Christian life that has to be done day by day, bit by bit, as God's people. And notice it says, for if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are those who have the knowledge of the Lord who don't add on to these things and are unfruitful. We, we just read about them in verse 20 of chapter 2. Escape the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but are again entangled in them and overcome. For them, that latter end is worse than if they never heard at all. And notice verse 9 of 1 Peter 1. For he who lacks these things, this fruitfulness, these godly qualities and virtues, he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. That's why it says to make, next verse, make, be diligent to make your call and election sure. If you do these things, you'll never stumble. True Christians can stumble. We saw that. We see that in Scripture. We see David doing that. We see basically every... Christian in Scripture that's given an extended uh, summary of their lives and their works, falling and stumbling in mighty, sad ways. So don't think that we won't. Do not think that you will not. But if we persevere and press on, verse 11, the great comfort, so, for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And you get into all these layers. Uh, a man must be born again to see, to enter the kingdom of God. Here it's saying you must persevere to enter into the kingdom of God. Well, you think about the already and the not yet aspects of God's kingdom, that we are already alive in Christ. If we are alive in Christ, we already have a sight of him and are part of his kingdom and his covenant. And yet the entrance to the everlasting kingdom when Christ returns, passing that final bar of judgment, as it were, the judgment seat of the Lord, awaits us. It is certain for us that we will inherit it as we persevere, as we are his true people. That is abundantly open for us. But perseverance is not optional. It is absolutely necessary. And none of this denies justification by faith alone. It is a right understanding of justification by faith alone. Faith is not antithetical to works. Faith contains and guarantees good works. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works. The only thing that faith and works are in opposition to is that faith does not look to works as merit for salvation. But works are part of our working out of our salvation, our living in Christ Jesus. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works. And it's a pity how many Reformed folks have twisted this and been so allergic 
to works. Works as merit? Yes, that's anathema. Faith apart from works is also anathema. It's a dead faith, as James tells us. So we should preach both as anathema. (laughs) So, as we come to the final verse here, or actually, I'm sorry, I didn't cover the last clause there in verse 17. Uh, Beware lest you fall away from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. Again, don't fall away, be steadfast, so you're not distracted, so you're not led away. Some can be firm in the faith for a season and then be led away to one degree or another, so keep on keeping on, as it were. We know Peter denied Christ three times and had to be restored. What else do we know about Peter? After the Spirit was poured out, what did he do? What did Paul have to rebuke him for? The Judaizer issue, right? He was uh, eating in Galatians 2.13. It says, in fact, it's the same phrase that's used. Being led away is used there in Galatians 2.13 also. The same word. Maybe, well, there's a reason for that. Peter himself, Barnabas as well, other Jews, they were eating with Gentiles until some Jews came from James. And then they pulled back, right? Because we don't want to offend the Jewish people. We don't want to make it look like you have to be one of us and you're still unclean. No, they're not unclean, but they pulled back. And Paul withstood him to his face for basically trying to follow the ceremonial law and keep these things going and denying what Christ had actually done. Even an apostle can be led away with the error of the wicked. Now, in Peter's case, he many times grieved Jesus and grieved the Spirit. If he could do it, we can too, and yet he was finally saved. We know Judas was a real disciple and yet was not finally saved. He did not persevere to the end. He killed himself and betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this is the peril of not progressing. And it doesn't... The scripture is not saying, well, if you're certain that you're a Peter and not a Judas, you don't have to heed these things. These things don't apply to you. That's not what it's saying. It applies to all of us. The ones who prove to be Peters and faithful are the ones who heed it and persevere. The ones who prove to be apostate and Judases are the ones who don't heed it, who shirk it off and follow the ways of the wicked to their own destruction. I hope this is making sense. I hope that this is clear. Sanctification is a battle. It is something we must pursue. It's not a passive thing. I've heard so many people say, the only thing you have to do for sanctification is just remember your justification. What does that even mean? Just remember that I'm saved. What that means is I can sit back and take it easy because I'm forgiven. Well, that's what Paul says in Romans 6. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That's just a fancy heresy of saying the same thing. Don't be deceived by that. And I was going to note earlier, but I'll note it now. Ladies, Titus chapter 2. And this is for all of us, really, but it says that the truth is blasphemed by feminism. Feminism is a damnable heresy that is in the church today. When women are homemakers and older women are teaching younger women to do this, to take care of the home, to love their husbands, and even says obey their husbands, and uh, teach and train their children... It says, do this so that the truth is not blasphemed. These false teachers are said to blaspheme the truth. These aren't small matters. This leads people to hell. 
Now, I, I mentioned this is going to be a little extra fiery today. <laughs> so we saw this in, in, in Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 17. We do not want to neglect the means of our preservation and therefore fall into grievous sins, because even true Christians can do that for a season, for a time, and even lose the assurance of our salvation, which is a miserable state to be in. David says, restore to me the joy of my salvation, because while it was unconfessed, his adultery with Bathsheba, his murder of Uriah, oh, he was nigh unto hell. The Lord kept him, of course, because he was his elect, he was his child, but it was grievous. And the fallout for the rest of his life was grievous in his home. The sword shall not depart from you, David, because of this. Let's apply this to us here at Heritage. Do you want your children to sneak into the kingdom or to flourish as God's children? Do you want to expose them to false teachers and seductive doctrines that stir up the lust of the flesh? I'm trusting that you do not. Well, if not, then pour God's word into them. Our children are still by nature sinful, as we are. Our inertia, if we're not laying hold of the means of grace, is still back towards sin until glory. You can simply not feed them the truth and not live it out before them. And they're going to be susceptible to error in doctrine and in practice. Live by the word, know the word, feed upon the word, feed it to your children, set a godly example. And by God's grace, they will follow. What does that look like? Well, we've had sermons on this. Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 11, repeat essentially the same command to be diligent to teach all the words of God to your children. That word literally means diligent to try to impress it or inscribe it, to write it on their hearts. Again, it's not an either or. It's not like, well, now the new covenant writes the law on their hearts, so I don't have to teach my children diligently. No. The Lord inscribes the law on the hearts of our children by and through our teaching it diligently to them. Just as the preaching ministry and witnessing to others, proclaiming the word diligently and persistently, the Lord uses that to write the words of his law on their hearts, to redeem them, to regenerate them. It's not an either or. It's both and. Ephesians 6.4 says particularly for fathers to not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. So do you want your children to be like 2 Peter 3.16, those who are untaught and unstable? No. Then teach them, as Deuteronomy 6 says, as you lie down, as you rise up, as you go in, as you go out, like the air that you breathe, write the words of God in your home, catechize your children, teach it to them, train them. This is what it means to be diligent. It's not just bringing them to church once a week. It's not just say a few words to them at night. Yes, we should be doing those things, but it's more than that. Let's remember the vows that, well, I think all of our members at one level or another have taken for our children. For those who have had their children baptized in this church, and particularly you vowed this before God. Do you promise in reliance upon God and with the help of the Christian community to do all in your power to instruct this child in the Christian faith, to pray with and for your child, to set an example of piety and godliness before him, or, and to endeavor by all the means of God's appointment to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? You have covenanted with God to do this. As a whole congregation, we covenant together to help in this saying, do you, the people of the Lord, promise to receive this child in love, pray for him, help care for his instruction in the faith, and encourage and sustain him in the fellowship of believers? 
And as a congregation, do you bind yourselves to assist in the instruction of this child? And we all said yes to God and to one another. Brothers and sisters, are you doing this? Are we doing this? Are we pursuing this for our precious covenant children and for the sake of our own souls? If not, we are breaking the covenant and sinning against God and our children. We are putting them in the path of destruction and damnation of these false teachers in this wicked, sick world that we live in right now. And one final thing to bring out here and think about, we've, in the emails and so on, we've been considering schedule changes to our weekly gatherings and our worship services. The purpose is to help us and our children efficiently and maximally grow in the Lord. The Lord gives us six days of work and a Sabbath day to worship and be refreshed in him. We do not yet have a building, so our options are not as full and free as we would like. I would love, I would love to have our own building, to have a space like this where we could gather morning and evening on the Lord's Day to worship him, as the church historically has always done. At this time, that is not possible. It is possible, as mentioned, to have a morning service and then early afternoon service. That is something that we could do. Or we can keep it as we have right now, which is at the moment what we're doing, where we have a Sunday service and we have this midweek Thursday evening service. And praise God for that. We recognize Thursday evenings are difficult. People are working. People are busy. It is not the Lord's Day. And so the ability to get there is more challenging, more difficult. Even on the Lord's Day, there's acts of necessity and, and so on. And sometimes... Some, their job, their line of work will not permit them, enable them, allow them to be able to be in worship every Sunday. But as much as you are able, you should attend all of our worship services. And also please try to come to Sunday school, the midweek gatherings that we have every other Tuesday, for the sake of you and your children, for your souls. Do all that you can, then, to structure your life so that you can attend these things as often, as regularly as possible. The elders, all of us, we want to accommodate schedules, and we all, even as a small church we are, even as we're slowly growing, no one's going to have the perfect schedule for each person's lifestyle. That's true. But we do want to structure things to best accommodate and minister to the congregation here at Heritage. Now we know on the Lord's Day, you're commanded and summoned by God himself to worship to come to the worship services. We also, again, we highly urge you as much as you can to attend Sunday school, to attend the midweek services as well. So please assess your schedules, heed these warnings, think of these things, and prioritize the feeding of your soul. We also offer, uh, and for those who are newer, this may be also encouraging, I, I hope, <laughs> uh, reimbursements for Christian education. Homeschooling materials, um, if you have to go to a Christian school for your kids, tuition payments. We want your kids to be trained in the Lord. We don't want money as much as possible to be a hindrance to that, to have helps and aids, especially to know the Lord, but in all areas of study. We want that for your children, and you can be reimbursed for that. I believe up to $2,000 a year for each family. I'm also offering to teach a Bible and history course, uh, free of charge, a homeschool class. We want to give you many means as a church to help you stand firm and press on in holiness and persevere in the faith. 
And so we pray that the Lord would use all these means so that we and our children do not fall from our own steadfastness, being led away of the error of the wicked, but would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Why? Why does it say this? Who is the glory to? To him be the glory both now and forever. We're doing this for his glory. We're doing this to seek first his kingdom and righteousness. We're doing this because we love him and we love one another. And we want to see holiness in us and our children for his glory. So others would see his glory. So that we would delight in him and he would delight in us. The Lord is preserving us and will preserve us to the end. As his true people. But even as his true people. Even as those who are preserved and predestined for salvation. Eternally in the kingdom, in the everlasting kingdom. If we fail to lay hold of these means of grace. We can grieve the spirit. We can Face every punishment or judgment, perhaps is a better word of God, minus the eternal lake of fire. Well, let's not live like those kinds of Christians. Let's not say, well, at least I get to go to heaven. Let's press on into all holiness and be his pure and spotless bride. And with this in mind, we say amen and come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we see your sobering words in scripture, your, your warnings to us, your urgency with which you address us in scripture to know you, to know your word, knowing all scriptures profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Lord, you saved us to be holy. You saved us for good works, and you saved us to fight the good fight of faith. It is a struggle. It is a battle. It is something that we must pursue. The perseverance of the saints is not the passivity of the saints. Lord, help us to understand that. Help us not to confuse categories, to conflate justification with sanctification. Help us not to be soft uh, antinomians or those who turn grace into uh, a buffer, a softening of God's law or softening of our duties to serve the Lord. That is not what grace is. Actually, grace, Lord, your grace, your saving grace, equips us and enables us to love you and serve you from a true heart, to keep your commandments, to walk in your word. That is the power of the new covenant. And so, Lord, help us to do that. Help us to heed your warnings, to see wickedness, to stand firm in your word, to be well-taught and mighty in the scriptures, to teach this to our children, and to delight in it as the Christian life, as the Christian faith. Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done, Lord. We know that your kingdom is a spiritual power come down from heaven to earth. That is not just about building up businesses or the size of our churches or even the size of our families, because if our businesses and our churches and our families are spiritually dead, it's all damned. So God, give us spiritual life and spiritual vitality and let that be the root which grows and blooms into the transformation of all society. And indeed, may the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.